Hello and welcome to Giant Mess, a sloppy sports and entertainment talk show that covers a little bit of everything from New York Giants football to Mets baseball, movie reviews and TV show recaps and reactions. We also have some life lessons and some funny stories to go along with that. Mixed in for good measure, it's hosted by a giant mess. That's me, the real since Neil Lynch, former college quarterback and pitcher, film and media studies major, current overthinker. Leave a voicemail at 862-BIT-1986. That's 862-248-1986. On today's episode, we're going to be reviewing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. The culmination of the James Gunn trilogy. There could be more Guardians of the Galaxy entries, but a lot of people leaving that part of the MCU. So it feels like... They could take it beyond that to more, but we'll get into the details right here, right now. So let's get it started. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. Our beloved band of misfits are looking a bit different these days. Peter Quill, still reeling from the loss of Gamora, must rally his team around him to defend the universe along with protecting one of their own. Spoiler alert, it's Rocket. A mission that, if not completed successfully, could quite possibly lead to the end of the Guardians as we know them. If you've seen the movie, you know how that turns out. It's rated PG-13, directed and written by James Gunn. After him being fired, he was fired in 2019 for some tweets, probably, right? That's how they get you, the tweets. He put out some pretty, uh, I guess, graphic, explicit, provocative tweets back in the day, about a decade ago, and they caught up to him. And so Disney was like, no, you can't, we can't have that. And then ultimately, Dave Bautista and most of the cast were like, well, if Gunn's not in, we're not in. And we don't care if we have contracts. We want this guy. We love him. And so eventually they hired him back. Produced by Kevin Feige of Marvel fame. Released on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Runtime of two hours and 30 minutes. Did it feel like two hours and 30 minutes? No. That's that's you've done some good stuff. You're doing good things when two hours and 30 minutes can go by and you're not you're not checking the clock. You're not checking the watch. Stars uh, returns Chris Pratt as Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord. He's in a state of depression following the appearance of a variant of his dead lover, Gamora, who does not share the same affection for Quill as her older version had for him. And uh Zoe, Daldana, Zoe Saldana returns as Gamora. It's the um, 2014 version of Gamora, right? In Endgame is all like, because Thanos, try and keep up. Thanos <laughs> threw his daughter, Gamora, an adoptive daughter, Gamora, off the cliff to get the Soul Stone. I believe it's the Soul Stone. So that uh, he could go and defeat the Avengers in Endgame. So she is, in fact, dead. But in the process, there's a lot of time travel in Endgame. <laughs> and uh, so the 2014 earlier Thanos catches wind of all, that, all the crazy, craziness that's happening with the Avengers because of Nebula, because Nebula is not like us. She is a cybernetic organism, and so she linked to herself in the future, was able to project what was going on in the future to the past, to Thanos. That's when he was able to go and travel to the future 
to prevent all that crap from happening. And uh, Gamora went with him. So the Gamora you see in this movie, it's a long way of saying, is not the Gamora that fell in love with Peter. It's the Gamora that uh, before she joined the Guardians and before she fell for our Star-Lord, our precious Star-Lord. Um, and she's now a leader of the Ravagers, which was uh, the the crew that picked up Peter Quill when he was eight, abducted him at the beck and call of Ego, who commissioned Yondu to pick him up. And, uh, and that's where we stand with those two. And uh, it really... You know, I went into this movie knowing that it was going to be emotional and I was, I brought some Kleenex because I was like, this is going to, I'm going to have some tears yanked and jerked straight out of my ducks. So I'm, I was fully prepared to bawl my eyes out. Did I bawl my eyes out? No. So if you were like wondering, you know, I created like, I probably should have built up a little more suspense around that and held that to the end, but I don't want to jerk you guys around. Like my tears were jerked. I did not bawl. But I did tear up a little bit. And there was a that scene where I think it was earlier on in the film where, you know, we have Peter still looking at Gamora as if it's the Gamora that fell in love with him. And Gamora being like really pissed off and upset and annoyed because it's like, dude, I don't friggin' know you. So like put this out of your head. And he he gave that little soliloquy speech monologue that uh that was really hit home you know, about how he just, he misses her so much and that uh, it, it's hard for him to move past that. He's still grieving, big time grieving. And I thought about that. It's like, you know, I lost my father. If my father all of a sudden is just like pops up, you know, 2005, 2006, dad comes walking in my life. And I'm just like, huh, what? Did but he like it's a variant of him, and he never had me. And he's like, "Who the fuck are you?" It's like, "Well, you're my dad," and he's like, "No, I'm not." Or better yet, maybe a better analogy like, if I met, I don't know, that's probably not a better analogy. I'm not gonna go down that road. <laughs> Dave Bautista returns as Drax. Uh, just just a reminder that his family was slaughtered by Ronan the Accuser, uh, by uh, by order of Thanos. Karen Gillan as Nebula, she had a uh, got a little bit more of the spotlight in this one, developing into a slightly different person with more levity as she starts to heal. As she starts to heal psycho psychologically following the death of Thanos, who was the source of her abuse and torment, going from a minor villain to a member of the Guardians. Um, definitely more jokes for Nebula in this one. A lot of more comic relief which I appreciated <laughs> her, uh, her interactions with Peter. I mean, her actions with, with just about everyone were just like every single time hit the mark. So kudos to Karen Gillan for pulling that off. And hopefully we see more of her in the future. I think she has said that she's going to keep on keeping on. Palm Clementif, definitely butchered that, is Mantis. She is a empath. And Quill's half-sister. So if you didn't watch the holiday special, but yet you watch this movie, you might be a little like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, Mantis is Quill's half-sister. How'd that happen? And then, like, Cosmo, the dog, where'd this guy come from? Or this gal, I should say. Vin Diesel is Groot. Um, 
Groot's a little more jacked in this one, a little beefier, more of a cupcake stud. It's showing off his, his muscles. And maybe that's a, a, a request from Vin himself. <laughs> but he, towards the end of the film, takes on a, a much uh, more imposing form. So I don't want to like give it away if you haven't seen the movie, but like, there was also another aspect. There's a lot of aspects of Groot that you forget. And you're like, whoa, this dude can do just about everything. But, and it all very funny that Gamora having this being the alternate Gamora, past Gamora, the non Guardians, non Star Lord lover Gamora. She, she's like right there with most people who have never seen the franchise. And, and anytime Groot says, I am Groot, she's like, yeah, I friggin' know who you are, dude. You don't have to keep telling me. <laughs> it's just like she's not doesn't click for her yet what he's saying. Also, a nice little twist towards the end, at the very end that we'll get to with Groot. Bradley Cooper's rocket, genetically engineered, bounty hunter, master of weapons and military tactics. You kind of forget sometimes and underrate and undervalue how fucking baller rocket is. He's super like it doesn't come across. I guess sometimes because of his rough nature, brash, abrasive kind of personality and the way that he talks, it's like you don't, he kind of gets lost in the sauce that this dude is a genius and uh, should be treated as such. But he doesn't because he's a, he's a raccoon, you know? <laughs> it's just like got dealt a raw hand. Um, you know, Gunn has said this film tells Rocket's story, including his background, where he's going, along with how that ties to the other Guardians. And uh, kind of ties, that's the, pretty much the, well, you'll see. We'll talk about it. It completes a character arc that was established in Guardians of the Galaxy in Volume 2 and continued in Infinity War and Endgame. So it's like we, you know, there are subtle, slight references to where he's from, where he's going, how he's came to be. And, uh, but they never really went went into it because he never really wanted to talk about it. And I can see why. It's pretty gnarly stuff. Will Poulter as Adam Warlock, powder, powerful artificial being created by the Sovereign to destroy the Guardians. Because he is a creation, but he's fully fully formed physical specimen, like very strong, has superhero qualities, but he's, he was literally born yesterday, right? So he is still got the mindset of a baby in that he doesn't know pretty much anything. You know, he's entered this world, he can talk and he can think, but there's everything's like a first imprint for him. You know, case in point, I don't know, this is definitely not a spoiler, but uh Aisha, the high priestess, turns to Adam. They're interrogating one of the ravagers, I think, that they captured. And she goes, Show him that we mean business. And so Warlock just friggin' torches this dude with his uh nuclear laser heat, whatever powers, fries him right in his seat. And Aisha, the high priestess, is like, what are you doing? I said, show him we mean business. I didn't mean kill him. And he's like, I I thought that was the business. Like, <laughs> he just doesn't know. So I, I do, I mean, I like Will Poulter to begin with. And I do like that uh, they were able to give Warlock, you know, that angle in this, in this, in this film because it goes a long way um, in terms of, you know, comic relief. Although it does suck for that dude to get fried. Maybe he has a family, you don't know. 
Sean Gunn, James Gunn's Broham as Craglin. Uh, Yandu's former second in command with the Ravagers, who uh, actually went against and abandoned Yandu in volume two and then came back around, you know, towards the end of that, that flick. I don't even want to say this guy's name because I'm just going to get roasted online, but who cares anymore, you know? Chukwudi Iwuji as the high evolutionary, a scientist specializing in creating hybrid creatures and rockets creator, seeking to forcibly enhance all living beings into a special race described as narcissistic, sociopathic, but very charming by the actor. And I got to disagree there. I didn't think this dude was charming at all. It's at all. I don't know what, who or what he thinks he's charming to, but he's ruling based by, by imposing fear, using fear tactics. Like, oh, I'll just, I'll just freaking kill all of you. You don't listen to me. So I disagree with the very charming part. I think there might've been more opportunities for him to be more charming, but I just, the charming thing is just, nope, I don't see it at all. Uji also said there was something very Shakespearean about him, something very emotionally dark, and that's a lot of fun on top of that. Yes, and I don't know that you really get too much into that, unless, I don't know. There's been so many entries in the MCU that it's hard for me to kind of like go back through my mental Rolodex and be like, oh yeah, remember in the 11th entry when they made that, that one miniature scene talking about the high evolutionary? It's like, no, I don't remember all that. So maybe a super fan can chime in here and say, hey, Neil, Hey, dickweed, like this is why this this high evolutionary is more a more complex, uh, deep villain with depth than than you think it is, because because to me, it feels like the high evolutionary is just mad with power. And I don't I don't unless I missed it in this movie, maybe I did, but I don't see what's driving him to be perfect. And to have that perfect race, I don't see it. James Gunn likened the High Evolutionary to a space ver- version of Dr. Moreau from Island of the Lost Souls, which uh, was also re- remade into the Island of Dr. Moreau in the 90s with Marlon Brando. A movie that I never saw, but has made a strong impression on me <laughs> ever since I saw the trailer and clips and photos and stills still have not seen to this day, but I know exactly what the movie's about. And I know that it sticks with me to this very day. And I have to say it's like, yeah, spot on, you know, I, I see, uh, that Island of Dr. Moreau. And I see, uh, another movie I never saw, but I would think it's a, a good parallel to, or comparison to Tusk from Kevin Smith and Justin Long. Uh, Gunn referred to the High Evolutionary as the cruelest MCU villain to date due to how he negatively negatively impacts the lives of Rocket and his fellow subject friends. I might give him that. I might give him that. Like Thanos, you think back to Thanos, and uh, Thanos had his reasons, and it seemed measured, logical, methodical. It seemed like he had... um, it seemed like there was some kind of rationale that we could almost tune into and sympathize with and understand. Like this is, I think this because of this, and now we have to eliminate that to cure that and solve a problem versus this guy is just like, I just want to be perfect. And I, and I just want perfection 
but we don't know why. Like, why are you perfectionist? Again, we might be missing something. Linda Carnalini as Lila, who I honestly thought this was Sarah Silverman voicing this, <laughs> and it turns out it's Linda Carnalini. Anthropomorphic Otter, who has robot mechanical arms. Like, they did away with her front arms and just have the robot mechanical arms. Rocket's love interest. Um, she, you know, you might remember her as playing Laura Barton, Hawkeye's wife in previous uh, entries in the MCU. Nathan Fillion as Master Karja, an Orgo Sentry at Orgo Corp. Nathan Fillion was provided a voice for another character in another Guardians and was also seen on a poster in another Guardians or another MCU movie. So he's been in and around and now we get to actually see his beautiful face on screen. The Orgo Sentries, the Orgo Corp, the whole thing, so funny. Like the fact that it's made out of living, breathing tissue, the materials and elements that the the friggin' suits <laughs> that the Orgo Sentries wear, where they look like... Uh, what is that show with Neil deGrasse Tyson that came out that was a remake of a show that came out with uh, that famous scientist whose name I'm forgetting? Space. No, Species. Oh, boy. Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right? I remember Cosmos. There was one episode where they were talking about those little ass tiny bears. Are they called water bear? Is that it? A water bear is the first. Uh, no, come on now. Yeah, they're like these microscopic creatures that you can only see in an electron microscope, but they're really pudgy. They have eight legs, little tiny feet or hands, and like just a hole towards the front. It's a tardigrade, I guess, is what its uh, official name is, but they're also known as water bears or moss piglets, which I think is a great. I prefer that over water bear because it doesn't really look like a water bear. Um, but these orgo sentries have like these big, bulky, beefy, where it's kind of like accentuating body parts, but on the outside, and and they just look like tardigrades. <laughs> they look like moss piglets. So funny, so good. Um, Sylvester Stallone as Stackar Ogard, a high-ranking Ravager. I got to be honest here. I was really pleasantly surprised and happy that he was in volume two that scene where it's snowing and he's talking to Yandu and banishing Yandu. I thought that was really cool. I thought he, he was kind of unnecessary in this movie. It, it didn't feel like he brought much to the table for this installment. Uh, I, I don't know if I was expecting more. I was maybe hoping to build off of what was established in volume two. Volume two is just kind of like a, a shock to the system. And it was like, whoa, he's in the MCU. Um, this is crazy. This is crazy to volume three where, you know, he's going to be in it. And he only has a handful of lines and it doesn't, I don't know. They like, you could have easily, I think you could have easily deleted those scenes and I don't think anything's really missing from the movie. So kind of disappointing a little bit. Elizabeth Debicki as Aisha, the golden high priestess, leader of the sovereign people who had Adam Warlock created to destroy the guardians because Rocket stole some batteries. Come on, high priestess, get off your high horse. Jesus, cripes. Maria Bakalova, who you might remember as uh, the, hmm, what was her official role? Barat 2. What was the name of her character? 
she's Bulgarian. She was the highlight of uh, Barat 2. And I'm trying to think of what her role, her name was in that. Tutar Sagdiev. Oh my God. She was so good in that friggin' movie. She is the voice of Cosmo, which if you didn't see the holiday special, they introduced, hmm, I don't know if they introduced Cosmo there. Cosmo might have had an introduction in previous movies or TV shows. Hard to keep track. But she had a more prominent role in the holiday special. She's a, a dog that develops psionic abilities, telekinetic abilities, after being sent into space by the Soviet Union. James Gunn changed Cosmo's gender from male. Uh, you know, in the comic books, Cosmo is a male to female for the film as a tribute to the character's original inspiration, Laika, a Soviet space dog who became one of the first animals in space. Asim Chaudhry voices Tiefs, an anthropomorphic walrus, Michaela Hoover voices Floor, an anthropomorphic rabbit, possibly the scariest friggin' thing I've seen in a long time. And I'm I'm an old. I'm an old. And uh I was sitting next to in the theater. I had a kid that maybe five could be six like i think i've said this before like these seats his legs uh were straight out normally in the seat as normal and then he <laughs> reclined the seat and it's like hey your body position hasn't really changed your legs are still straight out <laughs> like and I, I, every time something like really like adult mature themed like happened in the movie i just kind of like took a quick glance over to him like okay is he gonna is he gonna melt down now is this where his life has changed forever and no he was fine a little antsy but otherwise you know i couldn't sit still but i was like that's normal but i was expecting a couple of shrieks or groans or cries or something because like, like i was even a little taken aback by this anthropomorphic rabbit dude with the like the of like something some kind of like bane mask master shredder mask covering the rabbit's face red eyes blood red eyes and just like these spider robot legs just like whoa dude daniela melchior as yura the receptionist orgo corp uh she's in a lot of makeup and wearing a wig but you might recognize her from playing rat catcher 2 in the suicide squad a movie directed by james gunn Miriam Shore and Nico Santos report, uh, appear as Recorder Vim and Recorder Thiel, the scientifically-minded henchmen of the Highway Revolutionary, where they have that cool kind of nebula-like thing on the side of their head. Jennifer Holland appears as Administrator Qual, security employee of Orgo Corp, who also plays Amelia Harcourt in Peacemaker, directed by James Gunn. And Judy Greer who played Maggie Lang in the first two Ant-Man films, voices War Pig, a cyborg pig working for the High Evolutionary. One of my favorite characters, and I don't know why, but that character, War Pig, and then Behemoth, the cyborg bird, uh, another lackey of the High Evolutionary, gave me Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle 2 vibes. Like, what is it? Rickshaw? Not Rickshaw. Jesus Christ. Bebop. And Rocksteady from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Very cool creations. And uh, Behemoth was voiced by Ronaldo Faberel, who played Arturo Cabrera in Ozark, if you know who I'm talking about there. So uh, 
as I mentioned, movie is volume three. Volume one was mostly 70s jams. Volume two is mostly 80s jams, I believe. And then volume three is mostly 90s jams. And towards the end of the movie, you start to, you see uh, them move on to the 2000s. Um, so they're at their new headquarters on Nowhere, which is the skull or the head of a celestial, dead celestial. Attacked by Warlock. Rocket's m- mortally injured. Like, it's not looking good. They find out uh, he probably has 48 hours to live. And they can't put a med pack on him because there's a some kind of kill switch on his heart. And so if you put the med pack on, it will kill him uh, right away. And so they need to get a pass key to override the kill switch so that uh, they can save their friend. Um, Warlock is stabbed by Nebula through the friggin' torso and survives. Um... But in that opening scene, when we open, we we arrive at nowhere. We see Rock, uh, Rocket, and he's playing on the. I think it's a Zune, and he's playing Radiohead's "Creep." Now, if you've watched the movie, maybe these lyrics will mean something to you. I wish I was special. You're so effing special, but I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. So those lyrics, to me, are a foreshadowing of what to expect in the rest of the movie, right? You have the high evolutionary who wants the perfect body. He wants the perfect soul. He wants perfection. He wants to create the perfect race, the perfect society, and yet he can't do it. And so that's his driving desires, to be perfect. And then you have Rocket, who feels like a creep, probably, and feels like a weirdo because he's this creation... He wasn't created by a mom and a dad. He's now this other thing that was created in a lab. And uh, so he's probably often, that's probably his inner monologue going off. Like, what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. So uh, very apropos, perfect song selection for the opening scene. So Rocket's lying there unconscious. He's trying to recall his past. Um, We start to see him as a baby raccoon when he's first approached by the high evolutionary and um, high evolutionary's goal is to create a counter earth. And so uh, that's where he meets rocket meets Lila Teefs and the rabbit floor. Um, we start to see, we get a glimpse of what the high evolutionary is trying to achieve. He brings in these other animals and he shows, puts them in these pods and he, you know, turns on the machine and he shows that uh, these animals have an unbelievable amount of rage. And so he can't have that. We can't have rage if he wants these uh, creations to be perfect. So that's when Rocket, who's who's like pff, still like a babyish, teenish type, is just like, oh yeah, you just gotta dial this up, dial this back, you tweak this, but spitting out all this like uh, highfalutin science talk, and uh, impresses the high evolutionary. But the high evolutionary is also like. You can't be smarter than me, dude. That's not part of this this thing. Like, thanks for that, but I'm gonna kill you and all your friends. <laughs> so, um, that's where we see he rockets. Like, okay, well, that whole game plan we have when we're all lying on the floor and we're all like, uh, we're all gonna, we all gave ourselves names, 
and we're talking about seeing the sky and getting and and like going to Counter Earth. Like we're not going to be part of Counter Earth. That's just got uh, that's the the note I got from my meeting with the High Evolutionary. So I'm going to break us out of here. He does, and High Evolutionary catches him and uh, shoots Lila, and then uh, Rocket goes to town on the High Evolutionary's face. So that like when you see high evolutionary at first in the the flashbacks in rocket's flashbacks it's it looks like a dude a fairly normal dude who likes his leather like we all do and wears a cape of course but <laughs> like not wearing what looks to be a stretched out face you know over what appears to be a mechanical uh dome you know machine dome uh, but then uh, you see present day high evolutionary and he's got the stre stretched out face over what appears to be a robot or machine head machine head surprised they didn't put that in there. God damn. Uh, and so Lila's taken from us and so are Tiefs and floor, but rocket steals a spaceship and flees the premises. So the, the squad, the remaining, um, Guardians, they uh, head to Orgocorp to retrieve the file that should have this pass key to override the kill switch. And this is this was in the trailer, but I still find this to be one of my favorite parts of the movie, where they're each wearing a different colored suit. You know, blue, yellow, red. Um, I don't think there was a green, was there? And the scene where they they land on the planet on Orgocorp. And um, he has the there's like the five buttons on his on his arm, and he thinks that like each button is a, has a different color, and he thinks that oh those that color corresponds to the suit. So if I press this blue button, Gamora's in the blue suit. I can just talk directly to her. No one else will hear what I'm talking about, of course. It, uh, Mantis is like you know this is an open line, right? Like we can all hear you. Um, that was the. One of the scenes I was talking about where, you know, he's just trying to express like why he is the way he is with her. And it and it's uh really tough for him and for, for the audience. But then uh you have that immediately um there's a lighthearted nature to that because he's speaking over the open line and then <laughs> Mantis and and Drax trying to tell him like uh oh well yellow is green and red is yellow, but green is blue. And so, and it seems pretty intuitive. Why don't you get it? <laughs> uh, so they are, they're able to, uh, that Orgo Corp sequence is just so good from top to bottom. Like the set design, design the costumes, the makeup, like, uh, you know, the, the, everything is just so spot on in that scene. And I think that's what, guardians why guardians is probably and I, this is i don't know if there's a hot take but probably the best trilogy of the entire mcu i mean you think about the movies that have gotten trilogies iron man iron man one great iron man two no nah. iron man three nah. then you have uh was it captain america and thor like it just guardians took us down a different path Took us a different route, got a little offbeat, off the wall, and I just appreciate it. And Orgo Corp is a shining example of that. Like, the, just so bananas, but still does not, it's not, 
it's not taking you out of the movie, taking you out of the experience. It brings you further in. It's not like this is used as some kind of, oh, we're going to shock and awe. We're going to like, it's not a distraction. It just falls in line with the tone of the movie. And it's kind of why you don't see much of that in most of the other MCU movies because they don't have that kind of tone, I don't think. But with Guardians, it's like they gave Gunn the keys and they're like, I have at it, Hoss. Like whatever whatever you're, that beautiful brain of yours cooks up and whatever crazy stuff you've seen in the comics, let's just bring it to the masses. And they did. And, and I mean, it's my, I think it's my favorite trilogy. Like you can't say the same for Thor. Thor got friggin' four, what, four movies? Thor, Thor Dark World, Ragnarok, Love and Thunder. Ragnarok, obviously the best. People have their thoughts about Love and Thunder. Um, Dark World was mostly forgettable. And the first one, Thor was like, eh, it was all right. So, I mean, Spider-Man part of the MCU, I guess so. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him on the Guardians level. So as like nuts as Volume 2 was, Volume three feels uh, a bit more grounded because volume two was it was getting into it was like getting into like exposition uh, quicksand like quagmire a little bit where it's like all right so this dude is a planet but he has an avatar and he's just like screwing all these aliens and uh, screwing all these different people and planting a seed and it's like whoa like that was a lot big big concept to uh, to to go on a journey through. Whereas this one felt a little more straightforward, but still had all the style and panache that we love about Guardians, like the vibrant colors, uh, the soundtrack. Um, it's just whimsical. And you don't really get that in a lot of the other Marvel movies. So it's kind of sad to see it come to this version come to an end. I, I assume they would still want to continue it, but it does feel like it's just not going to hit the same way. So interesting to see what they do with it in the future um so they get the file the code's been removed they believe that Thiel, the one of the advisors with the nebula like thing on the side of the head one of the high evolutionaries advisors has it so they depart for counter earth um aisha and adam are hot on their trail because the high evolutionary has commissioned them to retrieve rocket for his brain to examine like how this raccoon is so goddamn smart. Upon arriving, the team is helped by residents, <laughs> which you have that scene when they first arrive when the kid like kicks over the ball to Drax and Drax just smokes her in the face. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose. Uh, but I love that. That's another part of the Guardians uh, trilogy that I love is that the they're obviously they're going to use a lot of CGI and it's part of the part of the the process but I do appreciate the practical effects the makeup there's a trivia I have some trivia later on about it but like the makeup that is in this movie is just awesome like it, they made the counter earth look so friggin cool that I almost want to have, I know we have, I know we're inundated and oversaturated with Marvel projects. It seems like we can't go a month without one. And I think they, Kevin Feige realizes that. And they're like, well, that's one of the lessons that we've learned is like, maybe we should space out things more. 
So I understand that. But part of me is like almost wants a counter earth series. I mean, like the level of detail and how realistic those uh, beings species creatures were on counter earth was just awesome um so nebula is forced to wait uh so uh quill groot and nebula go to the high evolutionary ship after uh talking with by the way that one so they uh eventually are able to convince like one of the creatures uh i don't even know what you call them counter earthians what are we called to aliens like we're on earth what are we called earth earth earthlings we're earthlings okay so a counter earthling has a soft spot and like brings them into brings them into her house and they they are sitting there and they're able to uh somehow communicate because the counter earthlings don't speak english they speak some language that was developed by the high evolutionary i'm not really sure and so they're able to uh figure out that she is saying, okay, they're in that structure, which looks like a metal mountain, but turns out it's the high evolutionary ship. And so uh, Quill asks to borrow her car and then Groot and Nebula are trying to get in. And that's where we have uh, a pretty funny scene of like Groot is able to get in and then Nebula is like the door's locked. And so Nebula, uh, a very advanced being, <laughs> can't figure out how to open the door. And so eventually like Quill's like, hey, yeah, the button. No, that's the keyhole. Press the button underneath the, the and then pull the yes. And she's like, all right, I pressed the button. Now what? And he goes, open the fucking door. There was a, mo- there was a lot to be made about this fuck. It was the first fuck. In the MCU, I was it the first fuck? It was the first F-bomb in MCU history, I want to say. Interesting that they would insert it there. It's like, the, it, it, I don't know that it really added much in the way of comedy. And if anything, it was too jarring. Where it was like, whoa, that does not feel like, this doesn't feel, I feel like this is a different movie or like this is uh, an outtake or a blooper. Like, it just doesn't feel consistent with what's going on here. I almost wish they had saved it for the very end, where it's like, uh, maybe when like Groot comes on the scene and and it's just like, I am fucking Groot, or something, something like that. Hey, this is the reason why I'm here and Feige's there, right? I'm not the guy, right? I'm not a genius. But... It did feel out of place. It didn't feel like it added anything. And I remember when he dropped it, I immediately looked at the kid to my right, and I'm like, "Oh my god, did is it, did your life just change? Like, are you now? What is what is your life gonna be now that you've heard that? <laughs> now you've seen that? And I was just thinking, like, what is the mom? What's going through the mom's head? Like, I don't know. I probably should have done a little more research, but uh." Yeah, so Drax and Mantis hang back. By the way, Gamora calling Drax and Mantis, Mantis and Drax Bug and Doofus? <laughs> if that's not the title, like there was a, I guess I read in the trivia that they were thinking about possibly doing a project where it's just Drax and Mantis, a la similar to the Christmas holiday special, where they kind of do their own side venture trying to track down Kevin Bacon so that Peter Quill will, uh, 
so they can uh, cheer up Peter Quill. That's like the ultimate Christmas gift. I I like that. An entire project, whether that's a movie or a series, I don't know if a series would necessarily work, but I guess it would work better than a movie. But if they do make that, I, I hope they call it Bug and Doofus. <laughs> I got that was probably the biggest laugh that came out of me was when Gamora threw that out there. I don't know that the rest of the audience really because it was a fast moving sequence, so I don't know that they caught on to it. But I I heard it and I and I remember I distinctly remember like two or three other people in the audience being like bug and doofus. So uh, Drax and Mantis remain with Gamora and Rocket as Quill, Groot, and Nebula go to the high evolutionary ship. Um, of course, Peter doesn't know how to drive a car, which uh, it was a that's a great call back to the fact that he was adopted when he was eight and never learned how to drive a car. Um, when they get to the high evolutionary ship, Quill gets in, but Nebula is forced to wait outside by war pig and behemoth um, because there are no weapons allowed and she's considered a deadly weapon. She has that nanotech arm now that is like pretty much like Terminator. I'm surprised we didn't get, um, well, I guess it came out after well, not really. The first one came out when Quill was on Earth, but the second one with the nanotechnology bots or whatever came out after he was abducted. So that's probably why they didn't make any reference to it. But very cool arm that can just like transform into whatever she wants. Um, so Quill and Groot uh, are able to get on board. And then uh, Drax, of course, is like <laughs> steals a motorcycle and says, uh, yeah, Mantis, like, hop on. We're going to go back to the ship. And she's like, the ship that's right there that we can walk to? And he's like, yeah. And, of course, he takes her to the high evolutionary ship instead. Koi Drax. Um, and then uh, high evolutionary discovers that, like, oh, because Quill's like, why did you create a counter-Earth where pretty much the same bad shit that's happening on Earth, drug deals, whatever the the examples that they gave weren't like that great it was like oh here's a drug deal here's two people beating each other up here's blah 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 and it's like they're looking as if oh my god this is the worst thing in the world i'm like hey i got a newsflash for you earth's a lot worse than that <laughs> but they tell it to high evolutionary and high evolutionary is like all right well i gotta start over again hit the reset button we're gonna destroy this earth and create it again and so uh, this kind of feels like it passed by with little to no, like obviously the Guardians were upset, but it was just like, holy shit, that whole planet just got like wiped off the face of the planet, off the face of the universe. And I guess Aisha too was killed in that. I didn't remember her getting killed in that, but apparently she did. And then uh, so Quill and Groot leap off killing teal which that was uh <laughs> that was crazy like jump uh, form tackling him through the window out the window and then a group being like all right i got this and just like creating wings out of his uh out of his wood and flying down and uh and capturing and holding on to teal and then teal's like you're crazy we're both gonna die and he's like no just you're gonna die and they they land and he drives him into the into the earth as uh, Gamora is like, hmm, this doesn't look right. The world's ending. Like everything's on fire and there's earthquakes and everything. So she is able to start up the ship, which is named after David Bowie, the Bowie. And is and 
but is not um, not a great pilot. And so she ends up crashing right in front of but. Peter and Groot and Teal, but not after Quill is able to extract the file, that metal thing, off the side of Teal's head. Meanwhile, Nebula, Mantis, and Drax, they board a high-evolutionary high ship. You know what? That villain needs a new name. He? Can we just call him he? He's ship. <laughs> just, or Evo. Can I call you Evo? Goddamn, what a horrible name for a villain. Uh, so Nebula, Mantis, and Drax board the, his ship, thinking that Quill and Groot are on board. They're not. And so... Uh, Quill is back on the Bowie trying to um, get the pass key to override the kill switch. Meanwhile, Rocket Flatlines has a near-death experience. And Lila tells him, eh, it's not your time yet. And Quill is able to use the code to disable the kill switch and save Rocket's friggin' life, dude. Um, meanwhile, Nebula, Mantis, and Drax come across all kinds of imprisoned humanoid children on the ship before being captured. And uh, so that's when Quill and Groot and Gamora set out to rescue them. They're, uh, so Mantis, Nebula, and Drax are placed in this chamber with monstrous abelisks, which we saw at the beginning of Volume 2 when Baby Groot was dancing all about. Uh, and Mantis is able to, Mantis is like, you know, pretty sure they just want batteries they just like to eat batteries they don't like to eat humans so i'm gonna like i'm gonna mind meld with them whatever she does where she touches them and is able to feel what they're feeling and uh it's like oh no they're just scared so let's just we're friends now so let's just <laughs> they're my pets and we're gonna leave um together they overpower the high evolutionary's army which felt very reminiscent to I guess the first Avengers where like you start to see all these uh, aliens pouring in through the portal and it's just like, we're going to have like all kinds of uh, it. They're just swarming. Um, and they were able to break into nowhere, I believe at one point and overrun that. Um, so Kraglin and Cosmo arrive on nowhere. Uh, oh no. But the rest of them bad. Yeah. So, um, High Evolutionary's army attacks. It's like a swarm of bees or like sort of like the Sentinels from the Matrix. That was very reminiscent of that or the aliens from Avenger. Just like overwhelming amount, the odds against them. Um, but, uh, so Kraglin and Cosmo arrive on Nowhere. Cosmo creates a telekinetic tuttle that connects nowhere to the high evolutionary ship to free the captured children. And then that's when Rocket discovers the imprisoned animals and is like, I can't leave you guys behind. Look at this. Look at these little critters. They remind me so much of myself and my friends that were taken from me. So he uh, only releases them. And I, the whole time I'm thinking like, that's a lot of kids and that's a lot of animals. And nowhere doesn't seem that big. It was almost, uh, it almost made me think of like the migrant crisis. So it was just like, so you're going to take in, like, far be it from me to make any kind of comment on nowhere. I don't live there. But it just seems like, uh, it seems like it's a pretty nice village. 
town and it's got enough people there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, uh, you know, no one's like living in the lap of luxury. It definitely feels like there's there's like a dive bar. It just feels like nice and cozy for the, the community that's there. And now let's introduce hundreds of kids and hundreds of animals into that. And I'm just like, how do you, uh, where do you, how do you, how's this going to work? <laughs> like it is from a... Like I understand, like what? So Neil, what are you saying? You're gonna leave all these kids and these animals to perish? No, but like we could put a time limit on this stay at nowhere, right? <laughs> um, but I do like that the the scene where they take down the high evolutionary, because that's uh, that ultimately can that ultimately can kill or ruin a movie is like that final showdown with the final boss the 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 big villain like that final showdown like how it goes down i remember um what was it blade there's just some movies where the that final showdown it can really crush a movie in terms of uh its longevity or its evergreenness i guess its place in in cinema lore and sometimes you have some great battles and sometimes it's just like this feels like every other battle but this one was like quick fast they wasted no time dismantling this dude which again it makes you think like we talked about ant-man and, and the quantum mania ant-man and the wasp quantum mania and how it feels like um you know scott lang ant-man and the wasp were able to pretty much take care of biz with uh kang and so that's why it's it's like we want kang to be this big ominous intimidating figure but for him to take be taken down by just ant-man the wasp like does that take knock him down a peg in terms of like villain awesomeness and but here it's like there is no one-on-one showdown it's like everyone comes in and everyone's just all angles just clipping him away and taking him out. And I, I really liked how that was executed because that doesn't, to me, that doesn't take down the high evolutionary, um, a peg like it did for Kang because there was so much hype around Kang, right? Everyone was saying like, this is the next big villain. He's going to be the next three, four installments. Like how are they ever going to beat him? And then he's getting, ta- he's getting like taken out by Ant-Man and the Wasp. And you're like, mm-hmm. seems like he's, uh, he's vulnerable. And he's got weaknesses. This was like, we we didn't even, there was no like sh- uh, uh, demonstration of power. You know, it wasn't like uh, he's high evolutionary is anywhere near uh, what Kang was made out to be or even Thanos. Um, and the the quickness with which they, they um, dispatched him, defeated him was kind of cool. You know, I think some people will be like, oh, man, I wanted more of a battle or a showdown or whatnot. I was like, I don't know. This kind of feels right. The fact that it's a team and they're each like so they work so well together and so choreographed and coordinated. And they just it was like uh, just executed with such precision that it was hard to argue with. And at that point, you're like, I think I've had enough of the high evolutionary shenanigans. So I don't know that we need to have like this crazy battle. It's like he, the guy sucks. He's just angry all the time and, you know, yelling and I'm not really charmed. Um, but there, the, the, the best part of that whole sequence is the whole time they're like telling Peter, 
hey pete like this is a trap like he know he he knows that you know he knows that we know he knows that you're coming he's gonna be so prepared it's a trap and peter kept saying it's not a trap it's a face-off and he kept saying that he kept saying that and and even when he's confronted by the high evolutionary or his minions they were like how stupid are you that you didn't realize that this was a trap and he's like it's not a trap it's a face-off and then of course one of the final moments for the high evolutionary is i think it's peter just is like grabs that face and plucks it off of him and then so he falls to the ground and that's when you see his his real face which was uh torn asunder by a rocket way back in the day has not healed and he's just like he, he looks like two face times two so like two face if he had one face <laughs> like two face all over the face um and uh i remember looking over the kid again being like is this are you gonna have nightmares or what bud because i'm gonna have nightmares that's a pretty whoa <laughs> pretty gratuitous ugly mug no offense but uh you know peter does make the the quip about robocop saying like you robocop wannabe um so the, they rescue the animals, whatever, but Quill like leaves behind his Zune, his, his music player, and so he figures he has to go back and get it. And so by the time he comes back out, nowhere is too far away from the ship. And so uh, he's he's just, you see his face start to plump up and he's like, he's getting, he's dying. He's freezing to death out in the, in the cold recesses of space. And then you see a finger come pointing out and it's Adam Warlock. Yeah. Former foe turned friend. Saves our guy, Peter Quill. Uh, had a change of heart after being saved by Groot because he was on the ship as it was a high evolutionary ship as it was uh, exploding, blowing up. Um, was about to shoot his nuke hands, laser hands, rocket hands, whatever. And then passed out and that's when Groot saved him so uh yeah all's well that ends well um in the aftermath quill leaves the guardians and he was he he hands over the captaincy to rocket and then he leaves for earth to reunite with his grandfather jason because that was uh i forget who brought that up gamora or something maybe it was rocket it was just like you're you've always you keep talking about how you lost your mom, but don't you have, uh, maybe it was Gamora, I was like, don't you have family, other family back on Earth? Why don't you want to see them? He's like, well, I had a grandfather. That's it. She's like, yeah, why don't you want to see him? He's like, well, he pushed me out of my mother's hospital room while she had the brain cancer, the brain tumor, which was put there by ego. And she's like, uh, well, he was probably trying to protect you. And so that's when a kind of light bulb goes on. And he's like, oh, maybe I should go back there. Like, I don't have Yondu. He said that everyone, there was one point where he goes, everyone in my life is killed or taken from me. Yondu, uh, my mother, you know, et cetera. And then that's when uh, like the grandfather figure starts to, to factor into things. And so he decides to leave the guardians to go see uh, his grandfather a uh, very emotional moment even though we haven't seen anything anything about the grandfather up until this point really other than a picture that still hit me when he when he sees when he enters the the the, the grandfather's home 
and he gets escorted to the back and he's there and the grandfather is like immediately recognizes him even though it's been 43 30 40 years later he immediately recognizes him as just like oh you know i was just like i get a little a weld up whoa a weld up big time um mantis i if there's one thing i didn't really uh buy into it was like mantis wants to leave because she wants to embark on a journey of self-discovery with the abelisks and it's like i i she goes and her reasoning was brief and i, I get it i guess she's like before you guys discovered me or or you know found me i did whatever ego wanted i didn't do what i wanted and then i i teamed up with you guys and joined your team and i did what you wanted but i haven't done what i wanted and so now i want to go out and do what i want to want what i want to do and it's like okay all right i guess i could buy that it just it just felt a little like it doesn't hmm you can still do that like and you still have the abelisks but i guess they're more your pets than your family or friends and you got to figure out what you want okay by yourself all right i guess gamora gets back with the ravagers nebula and drax remain on nowhere to raise the rescued children um which is funny because uh nebula anytime she's dealing with the kids like when they when nebula mantis and drax were imprisoned and the kids come over and they kept saying jube jube and they kept on like trying to they had their own language and nebula was trying to communicate with them and <laughs> it felt like she was always yelling at the kids and like yelling at the kids and yell, you know so it's ironic now that she's in this position of power where i don't know if that's gonna exactly fly you know and she has to learn how to uh had to be a little softer with her approach. But I guess she kind of learns that with Drax because Drax in that scene is he he puts on his uh his father hat, right? His uh, his father clothes and becomes the dad, dad Drax. And he's like, "You know, I had a daughter and she used to love when I make funny monkey noises." And then he makes a bunch of noises that don't sound like a monkey, but the kids are eating it up. So, um, you know, it's I think that character arc for Drax is really awesome. The fact that he lost his daughter and his, his wife in the massacre. And then it ends up, he, he ends up basically adopting all these kids. And then for Nebula to go from, you know, I hate my father. He tortured me. I hated my sister, my adoptive sister for so long. And then we kind of got closer, but now she's gone. Cause it's a different version of her. But now, now this is my family. Like, and I'm able to have, you know, what what uh, family should be. Um, there are two scenes once the credits roll. Right, there's a mid credit scene, a post credit scene. Mid credit scene is Rocket, Groot, Cosmo, Kraglin, uh, Warlock, and Phyla, Phyla, one of the rescued kids, and Adam's pet Blorp, which I didn't mention in my my recap, but I was expecting Blurp to have a bigger moment, sort of like, uh, and I can't remember the movie I'm thinking of. I don't know if it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't think it's that. But uh, like a small creature, and it, this might have been in the MCU, and it might have been in the Suicide Squad. 
or am I thinking of the cat in Captain Marvel? You know what I'm saying? Like a cute, cuddly creature that you think is unassuming and not violent and peaceful because it's so cute that ultimately can turn into a, a weapon of mass destruction. Maybe it is the cat from Captain Marvel, but I was totally expecting Blurp to have something like that in this movie, and I feel like that was a missed opportunity a little bit. Like they set it up as, here's this cute creature. It wins over Adam Warlock, and everyone thinks it's just this cute thing that like licks people and you can pet, blah, 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 and then ultimately it's like what takes out like a whole flock army of bad dudes. Didn't happen. But am I in love with that new iteration of the Guardians? I don't know. I remember when I first saw the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, I was like, this is, I mean, really, MCU? Really? This is where we're going? Some ragtag bunch of whatever, like there's a friggin' tree? Get out of here. And then ultimately became like my favorite trilogy of the MCU. So... I should learn my lesson and not write off this new squad. You know, you still got Rocket. You still got Groot. Groot is like so big and large now that it, you can barely contain him on screen. And then you have Cosmo, who uh, was obsessed with Kraglin calling her a bad dog. I thought that was pretty funny. I, I It was at the point where like, oh, man, I think they're milking this too much. And then when uh, eventually when Kraglin's like, no, she's a good dog. It was like, she she's so happy because <laughs> that's all the dogs care about. Bad dog, good dog. Um, I don't know if I'm all in on Kraglin. I guess I am. You know, definitely doesn't have carry the same kind of oomph or, or force that Yandu did, but um, still like a, an interesting character. Adam Warlock, I feel like, there's more there to him, obviously. I mean, he's kind of a blank slate and uh, had a, a pretty interesting first week <laughs> of life. So uh, that could be something that, and and you know, and the and Will Poulter is like pretty cool. You know, I think he can he can carry that character. And then Phyla didn't see much of her. Don't know much about her. I know in the comics, from what I read, she's the daughter of Marvel who was played by Annette Benning in Captain Marvel. But I don't know if that's going to carry over to the movies. I would assume not. And then, uh, yeah, so they're, they're taking on a new mission. And then in the post credit scene, you see Peter Quill eating breakfast with his grandfather, who's reading a newspaper that says, Aliens abduct Kevin Bacon, tells all. Uh, tie back to the holiday special. And... Quill says something about like he's cutting the lawn for some woman that has a kid and he feels weird about it. And uh, the grandfather is like, uh, that's, that's the, you know, there's more to that. Or, 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 you know, I could tell you, if I could tell you all the stories and, and the Quill continues eating breakfast cereal. And then you see on the screen, the Star Lord will return. So what does the future hold for the Guardians of the Galaxy? Um, way back six years ago, there was a f uh, gun said there was going to be a fourth Guardians film and uh, that a fourth Guardians film could happen, but it would center on a new group of characters since uh, Gunn had plans to conclude the story of the team in, the, in volume three. Um, he had then said in September he was unlikely to return for another Guardians film, but would can, would work with Marvel 
uh, on projects that use the Guardians and Cosmic characters, I feel like that's probably out the door now that he's with DC. Um, and like I mentioned, there was a project, uh, a film centered around Drax and Mantis that Bautista really loved, called it brilliant, but it doesn't look like that's going to pan out. And Karen Gillian uh, in July of 21 said she expressed her desire to continue playing Nebula after Volume 3, but Zoe Zaldana in April of this year confirmed the Volume 3 would be her last and hoped that Marvel would recast the role. Pratt, Chris Pratt indicated his willingness to continue to play Peter Quill in the future. So I don't know where you go from here with the Guardians. You know, if Star-Lord's still a thing, but you have the new Guardians, does that mean he comes back? I don't know. I think he, this is going to take, I'd rather see them take their time, you know, take your five years or whatever to really think it out because it is a interesting and interesting franchise and there's so many ways you can take it. But to be honest, I'd also be okay with we never see another Guardians movie. Is that bad? This felt like a very fun, fun, there was a lot of finality to it. And it felt like there was closure, you know, like going into it, I knew that this was going to be the culmination. Like this is the end of the James Gunn trilogy. And this is the end of the team as we know it. Like he had a hunch. Like I thought like, my God, everyone's going to die. <laughs> like I just, I just had that in my head is like, everyone's going to die. And instead they, they disbanded to a certain extent. So, um, you know, I, I maybe there's a way to keep them in, like keep this new Guardians in the background somehow. You know, sort of what they did incorporating them in Infinity War and Endgame and things like that. But um, you know, give it some time to really uh, flesh it out. As far as trivia goes. This film sets the record for the most makeup appliances used in a single film, having more than 23,000 prosthetics used across more than 1,000 actors. And I understand that might be really expensive, but worth it. So worth it. I Like I said, I mean, I love th when people are able to pull off practical effects. I prefer practical over CGI. And I know that there's some CGI that we don't even notice. And so we don't know it's CGI and that's how good it can get. But when you do notice the CGI, it friggin' stinks. So I'm all in favor of prosthetics, practical effects. Um, and that counter-earth sequence was a prime example of that. I mean, the Bat Lady? What? It was like, whoa, that is legitimately a Bat Lady. <laughs> um, James Gunn and Chukwudi, Chukwudi Iwaji work to make the high evolutionary dark irredeemable character focusing on his traits of single-mindedness narcissism and zealotry traits held by the most horrific figures in history yeah i mean you can't help when he's talking about the perfect race you can't help to think about adolf hitler and the, and the nazis you know the first mcu movie to have an uncensored use of fuck again i think they could have done a better job of where they used it and how they used it it came. It just came across as like whoa, I, and uh, yeah. Every single song, not including the score or Badlands during the end credits, is diegetic, meaning like it's part of the scene and the characters are aware of it. 
Uh, Karen Gillan accidentally scheduled a couple's therapy session on a day she was shooting a scene for this movie and consequently appeared for the session in full nebula makeup. Oh, my God. That's probably not true, but if it is true, the legend of Karen Gillan lives on. I mean, I, I'm. it sucks that she has to go to couples therapy because couples therapy fucking sucks. I've went through couples therapy and it didn't work. Um, but then again, that's on me. But the fact that <laughs> she showed up in full nebula makeup is hilarious. Like, I can't imagine, like, if the reason they're in couples therapy is because of her obsession with work or like her work schedule or how she's a workaholic you know how work can sometimes drive a wedge between a couple like if that was the case and then she shows up in the nebula makeup and he's like see this is what i'm talking about she can't even bother to take off the friggin' makeup for a couple's therapy session oh man fly on the wall for that one that would have been priceless um so volume three was released on the sixth anniversary of uh volume two and marks the longest gap between an MCU film and its sequel, surpassing the record set by Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, released five years and six months apart, which I don't mind. You know, I think once you get into the the 20-year sequels, those are hard to pull off, you know? A lot of times it's like, what, why is it, oh, they're releasing it now? Like, why now? So I feel like five, six years, that's a pretty good... I feel good with that space, that gap. Um, and I think it worked here to uh, to um, my satisfaction, to great effect. I would say, though, um, what would happen if you didn't have Infinity War and Endgame and the Hollywood special? Is it still have the same kind of impact? impact? I don't know. Nebula has a new tano, uh, nanotech weave arm upgrade. Uh, courtesy of Rocket because she delivered Bucky's arm, which he was uh, thirsting after in the previous movie, previous movies. Um, James Gunner confirmed Rocket made the arm to, for Nebula thank, to thank her for uh, Bucky's detached vibranium arm in the holiday special. And then the spoiler trivia, which if you've listened this far, it's not really spoiling anything. I already spoiled everything. When Groot says, uh, I love you guys, instead of I am Groot, no one reacts. And this is because he actually said, I am Groot. But like Gamora, the audience grew close enough to being able to understand him. And it was confirmed by James Gunn, which I thought was, uh, that that got the uh, the waterworks pumping again. It was a, like, I was like, oh boy, I love you guys. So so great that that would be the one deviation from from I am Groot. By the way, I was looking up Vin Diesel, like how much did he earn to voice Groot when all he freaking says is I am Groot? And there was a report going around that he earned something like $54 million in total over the four films or whatever, how many times he's appeared as a voice of Groot, which was, which was debunked, but it was like, he's still making at least a million, which is not a bad day's of work. How do I get that job? Uh, and by the way, like James Gunn getting uh, canceled for something that happened a decade ago. I am I am excited and looking forward to my my meteoric rise to the heights of superstardom. To have that, to have uh, all my um, cancelable tweets come out. <laughs> That'll be a fun day. 
it's part of the reason why, you know, I just, I don't want to be famous, you know? I don't know if I can handle that. Um, this is the first Guardians film in which Peter Quill does not use his iconic Star-Lord mask or helmet. And there was a YouTube video that I think explained that, or maybe an article that explained that, and I wasn't able to read it, but it was uh, kind of interesting. Like, why not? Adam Warlock models multiple works of Michelangelo throughout the film. First, he models Christ in the Pieta, when Mother holds him after his fist fight with the Guardians. Uh, second, he touches Star-Lord's finger before he rescues him, which replicates the creation of Adam. Pretty cool. And uh, yeah. So that's, that's the trivia portion. There are references to... Uh, so the brightly colored spacesuits worn by the Guardians are an homage to the similarly colorful spacesuits worn in the Stanley Kubrick classic 2001 in a space odyssey. Howard the Duck is featured. You can briefly see him during a scene on Nowhere. I believe they're playing cards, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Rocket looks at a photo of Alf. Star-Lord calls High Evolutionary Robocop during his rant. The High Evolutionary's masks is the same as the mask the boy has on in Little Monsters, which I I tried to watch that. I'm pretty sure I tried to watch that with Fred Savage and Howie Mandel. And uh, I don't know if it was just like, I don't know if it was like a reprint or what. It just freaked me out. It was giving me the heebie-jeebies, so I didn't, I didn't watch all that. Um... Yeah, so yeah. So, what do the critics have to say? I know you're dying to hear that. The critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is a galactic group hug that might squeeze a little too tight on the heartstrings. The final Guardians of the Galaxy is a loving last hurrah for the MCU's most ragtag family. Agreed. I mean, that was fully what I was expecting going into this. Is like we're just gonna, it's going to be a moosh. And it was. The audience says, taking the team in a darker direction without sacrificing heart of humor, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 ends the trilogy on an entertaining high note. Yeah, you tend to you lose, and maybe that's what I meant when um, the high evolutionary just what he calls raises Counter-Earth, where he just destroys it to create a new one. It was, it, And I don't know how you, how you should handle something that deadly serious without derailing the movie too much but like an entire planet was just like destroyed you know basically the plot is like you know star wars like we're 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 trying to find the death star to make sure this it doesn't destroy another planet um but yet it was just this it felt almost like i mean and there was an entire sweet sequence dedicated to it but it did feel like um ultimately felt like kind of like a footnote, you know? Uh, maybe they could have added a quick sequence, just kind of absorbing that, like, or paying homage to those that were lost, something, I don't know. So, all critics, 82% of all critics gave it a favorable review, with an average rating of 7.2 out of 10, which I feel is low, low, low. Top critics were even worse. 68% of top critics gave it a favorable review with an average rating of 6.7 out of 10. Get the F out of here, dude. And because of that, Volume 3 is not in the top 10 or 20, or I think it's in the 30s in terms of rankings for Marvel, Cine Marvel Cinematic Universe releases amongst critics. 
It's just below Ant-Man, the original Ant-Man that came out in 2015, and is above She-Hulk and Captain America, the first Avenger. I would put this above all of those. I'd put it above Ant-Man for sure. 95% of verified audience members gave it a favorable review with a 4.6 out of 5 rating. And 94% of all audience gave it a favorable review with a 4.6 out of 5 average rating. And I would, I'm right there with you. It's hard to argue. I think I gave it a 9. Was it an 8 or a 9? If it was an 8, it would have been a high 8, so it should be a 9. I think I gave it a 9 on IMDb, 9 out of 10. And, uh, you know, the audience knows what's up. It's tied for the third highest audience score with Spider-Man Far From Home. So what's next for the MCU? Next up we have their, uh, the Marvels, which I saw a trailer for, and I'm just not into it. I just... <sighs> I don't know. Uh, I understand that Miss Marvel and Disney Plus very favorably reviewed, so maybe I should look into watching it, but then again, it's like I'm a 42-year-old dude and it's about a... About a teenage girl like i don't i don't know that feels like it's gonna be a misfire although rambo is cool in uh what's her name colonel rambo lieutenant rambo was pretty decent in uh wandavision i'm just not feeling it there's something off about that that like captain marvel and i mean captain marvel lost me when they had that shot of her Brie Larson like kicks ass and then they show for whatever reason they held the shot and she's running away from the camera and I was like oh that's how Brie Larson runs hey listen I can't run for shit I went on the treadmill at five miles per hour and I could barely do half an hour <laughs> so I'm not like the the shining beacon of, of running I'm not the model of how you should run but I can spot when running doesn't look right and like that her running away I was like I can't I this is I'm no longer <laughs> invested. Um, so after the Marvels, which comes out this year, I forget when. I want to say May. It might be May. We're in May. What am I talking about? Is it towards the end of May? I don't know. I don't know that I'll be watching it, uh, seeing in the theater. Uh, next up would be Thunderbolts in 2024. This is David Harbour, Julia Lee. Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, directed by Jake Schreier. Fantastic Four in 2025, directed by Matt Shackman, which I can't believe they're making another Fantastic Four, but I understand why they have to make it, because it's like it's been bungled so badly. But I do have a lot of faith and trust in Matt Shackman, so that could be a, a nice little renaissance. And then I don't know what they're going to do about Avengers. Like, with all the news that came out about Jonathan Majors, like, literally, Avengers the Kang Dynasty, 2025. Avengers Secret Wars, 2026. Like, this is supposed to be what Thanos was to the first phase or whatever it was, or the end of that first or third phase, whatever phase <laughs> Infinity War and Endgame was. Like, Thanos was the culmination of that, and so Jonathan Majors as Kang was supposed to be the culmination of this next group of phasing but like he's out, right? He's basically out as Kang. So it's like major level regrouping that I, that probably needs to happen for the MCU. So ultimately, I mean, it, it's awful what Majors did, allegedly. But 
ultimately it might be a gift because this allows this gives you a chance to t- take a step back, look at what's worked, look at what doesn't work, and maybe just tweak and adjust and calibrate a little bit and say, all right, you know what? Where are we going? What do we like? What's up? So who steps up to play Kang now? Ooh, great question. I don't really have an answer. I mean, you do you go pivot to the Creed 3 co-star, Michael B. Jordan? Probably not. I think you get Michael Shannon to play anything villainous and he'd be great, but he's already done General Zod in the DC universe. So it's like, do we already know what we're getting there? It kind of feels like it should go to an up-and-coming, unknown, emerging type actor versus a more established actor. I feel like those have, it's a gamble for sure, but those also have the biggest upside. Heath Ledger is the Joker. Everyone was like, that's a that's a horrible call. And it turns out it was the best. So here's to hoping they figure it out because guns uh guns gone guns gun done gone to dc so i'm expecting big things from dc over the next five to ten years and um wow what a changing the guard like it's kind of crazy like to think about the amount of turnover that we've had at d at uh marvel you know and and them trying kind of stutter stepping stuttering and stumbling towards that next like how do we recapture and how do we i don't know that they can match what they did with you know infinity war and endgame i just that's that felt so big and so powerful that's a that's a tall order and it's not been crap like i you know i Like when you compare this to the previous phases, yeah, it's not exactly up to snuff. But you compare it to a lot of the other stuff, especially the stuff that DC has done. It's like, well, it's better than that. So, if they need a consultant, I'm here. I know that gave zero answers or indication of where they should go from here, but uh, I'm willing to work on it and I'm willing to be part of that process. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. I appreciate your attention okay and your and your thoughts like let me know what's going on man i need feedback until you have get up the courage to tell me i'm gonna keep churning out this garbage (laughs) so godspeed we'll talk to you soon adios muchachos